0: Welcome to another episode of the Capital Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Beardsley. Today we have George Gao from Hehui Capital Management. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Bob. Nice to be at the show.
0: Absolutely. So let's start off by giving the listeners a bit about your background as well as what you're up to today.
1: Uh, Hi, um, I'm George Gao. I'm the founder, the CEO of uh, Hehui Capital Management. Uh, We are a Shanghai, China-based private equity firm um, focused uh, on the um, real estate um, development and um, also uh, PE uh, investment strategy, uh, as well as a couple of other strategies. And we started uh, um, 10 years ago uh, in Shanghai, and we started with funding of uh, Chinese uh, residential development projects and we have been focused on residential side of the real estate uh, so far. And uh, uh, 2016, we branched into a U.S. Uh, multi-family acquisition value-added strategy and have been running a fund um, for four and a half years now. Uh, and uh, we are gradually learning and accumulating knowledge in this essay uh, class.
0: Got it, so you mentioned You started with assets in China and then you branched out to the US and you mentioned a few funds. Are you operating, are you investing out of one fund across the different strategies or do you have separate funds set up for the different
1: strategies? Yeah, Mostly we have, you know, for each uh, project or each uh, investment target, we have one fund. Uh, So the investor is very clear as to, you know, what they are getting into. And then for the US um, multifamily value added strategy, we have a blind fund um, where we just um, agree with the investor the uh, investment um, strategy and the, the mandate, and then uh, we will um, use our discretion in terms of investing acquisition to the to the investment targets. Yeah, I do have a background in the uh, uh, investment banking. I used to be work for I used to work for uh, Macquarie Bank um, of Australia. Yeah,
0: got it. So I think a big question that a lot of people would have is how do you develop the expertise from China to invest in U.S. real estate? It's po- I'm sure it's possible, but how, how have you cracked the code?
1: Yeah, um, I was uh, uh, I was in the States for seven years. Um, I got my uh, undergraduate and a master's degree. I worked for a big four accounting firm for three years. So I have a pretty... Good, you know, knowledge about the U.S. Um, in terms of financial accounting and uh, uh, tax uh, areas. And uh, um, I used to work for Macquarie Bank, which is an Australian investment bank um, focused on their real estate. So I understand that the, how the investment banks, you know, does the real estate um, investments, um, the whole investment process. So um, it's easy to to transport this. Uh, knowledge and uh, educational background and uh, put them together to uh, for the, uh, to navigate uh, the uh, investment in this asset.
0: And to, to let everyone understand better, talk about how you partner with local sponsors to execute on your strategy.
1: Yeah um, it was uh, um, by accident uh, our current sponsor uh, they traveled over to China. And uh, I was, you know, in a, in a meeting with a friend and then so we just, you know, together we went to the, uh, the conference, uh, we, uh, went to the meeting with a sponsor and they introduced to us some ideas about, you know the projects they're involved with. And then, you know, we developed into relationships and we went to the States to visit uh, their projects. And then they mentioned, you know, how about uh, multifamily, are, are you interested in this? And it sounds good to me, so I, we went to see the did the, the, the assets and uh, looked at their, uh, their models and uh, started to, um, to go from there. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. And so, uh, have you stuck with that one local sponsor for your US investments or have you since branched out?
1: Yeah, our first fund was established in uh, 2016, and we have uh, 50 million uh, US dollars in equity. And we work with three sponsors um, and uh, four assets. And three assets was from this one original, you know, the first sponsor. And we also work with another one. And then we have a commitment uh, investment into a PE fund, which uh, uh, focused on same strategy. And uh, they diversify into about you know, like 30 assets or whatever. Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So something I want to spend some time on is risk. I, I studied your website and I, there's risk was a recurring theme on the website, risk management, mm-hmm. risk control, and then also, uh, actually, talking about leaning in and knowing how to smart, how to take risk in a smart way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Or maybe maybe the Google Translate didn't do a good job, but that's what I got from translating it yeah. to English. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so let's talk about your approach to risk management and how how you view that as the at the core of your thesis.
1: Yeah, I um, when I started, I read a book from uh, um, a Goldman Sachs uh, uh, chief uh, risk officer. Uh, I forgot his name, but it's a very, um, very good book uh, about uh, the risk, you know, financial. If you like you go to the financial class 101, they talk about, you know, insurance and the pooling of risks. So risk is at the heart of any financial um, transaction or struck um, deals. And uh, understand that the risk well will enable you to, to um, navigate um, your own um, your own asset. Uh, Basically, in Macquarie, we talk about, you know, freedom within boundaries, and this boundary is shaped by the risks, Um, which risk you want to take, you know, and then within that boundary, you're you're free to innovate. Um, And uh, I like myself to be a very risk averse person, um, like uh, driving a car extremely carefully, but I do understand that if I drive too slowly, it's still, you know, you have risks. So I'm a guy who's reluctantly driving fast. So when I drive fast, I'm very defensive and I just watch out for every kind of, uh, you know, things that's, you know, uh, I'm going to hit. And uh, so that approach that, you know, enables me to be sort of uh, comfortable with what I'm doing, you know, because it is a risk-taking process. So um, you cannot, you know, drive too slow um, because the inflation, you know, the uh, depreciation uh, depreciation of your cash um, uh, holding will affect you. But if you drive too fast and then you sort of don't know, you know, what kind of uh, risk you're taking and then uh, that's for trouble.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So as it specifically relates to multifamily, what are some ways that you seek to take risk in multifamily And then what are some ways that you play defensively and and don't take risk?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, um, residential is very um, easy to do the uh, desktop due diligence. You know, you look at the population, you look at the jobs and then you look at the uh, age groups and people's um, consumption, uh, residential, you know, housing consumption preferences um, and all these things. So this is important for us to understand the kind of uh, demand and supply in the market. You know that's one risk factor, and uh, then there are you know other risk factors such as you know the um, the, the, the occupancy, the, uh, the the rent growth rate, and then you go down there you have like you know collection problem you know which is right now, and our our approach has been you know mainly focused on a generic. Um, asset class. I will call it, you know, not too old, not too new. You know, we don't do like 70s and we don't do like, you know, 2010s and not too far, not too close. You know, we don't do like downtown high rise. We don't do, you know, very far away from the city town. We do like, you know, suburbs and not too big, not too small, you know, we don't do like, you know below 100 units and we don't do above like 400 or 450, 500 units. And uh, um, we try to be, you know, stay within the asset class that's preferred by the institutional investors. So, you know, when we exit, you know, there are plenty of liquidity to to, 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 uh, to exit. And uh, we also, you know, be careful about, you know, the demographics, you know, where people are migrating and uh, which state has lower um, income tax and more sort of uh, have, you know, more sensible uh, policy towards landlord. And uh, so all these things, I think, uh, paid off. You know, we also don't do like student housing. We don't do senior housing. We just do a market rate, uh, you know, uh, generic uh, property, you know, without government subsidy. And all these things paid off during the uh, the financial uh, during the uh, the pandemic. I think you know, still uh, with a class B play, you you get a more demand. While you you know get people. Uh, move out um, because of the job loss, but you you also have the people moving from the class A renters, potentially. And also you have the move-ins from the uh, downtown high-rise renters. And all these things sort of keep the class B going um, while things are sort of um, stressful. And uh, so that's the kind of uh, risk, you know, we realize, you know, just just judging by our occupancy, by rent growth, by even collection, you know, we are just doing fine throughout the amazingly fine you know, throughout this uh, pandemic. And at least uh, you know, we're we are glad, you know, we sort of just take the middle of the road approach without um, taking too much risk um, involved.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great strategy. And I think it's, it's similar to our strategy. Sometimes we deviate from that by taking a little more risk by buying further out, more secondary tertiary, uh, hmm. Or we'll take more risk via the business plan, where we'll buy something that is uh, l- high vacancy or has deferred maintenance and things like that. Yeah. And then another way to take risk is through capital structure, right? Through high, uh, through high leverage. Leverage. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, talk about talk about risk taking and risk mitigation in both the business plan and in um, in leverage.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, um, well, in terms of the financial s- capital structure of the deal, you know, we, of of course, you know, with, uh, you know, we are chasing for IRR. So, you know, we not, cannot afford to have lower leverage. And uh, we also, you know, judging uh, by the, the, the way these uh, lenders underwrite the deals, you know, um, they are not sort of crazy, like a subprime crazy, you know, in terms of lending to us. So um, this makes me comfortable and also, you know, um, yeah, so, um, we are, we're not too aggressive about the structure, but we take some aggressiveness. You know, we, in the fund structure side, you know, we do, uh, preferred in the, in the, and uh, the subordinated the trench. You know, we have some, some, you know, people taking the, uh, the, the rental income, the cash on cash and as dividends and some other people just defer this, uh, um, this uh, uh, income and until the end, when we exit, they take hundred percent of the residual value of the, uh, the fund, which is the capital gain. And they're doing pretty well. You know, we realized like 16% IRR um, after our fees and the U.S. tax. So uh, these are the, you know, capital structure-wise in terms of firm stru- um, t- fund structure, we have some, you know, structure over there, but uh, in terms of acquisitions, we just don't push it too hard. Uh, and uh, just, you know, in order to make the uh, performer work, you know, that's probably not a good way to, to go. Yeah. Right.
0: That's that's one of the biggest ways to get into trouble. Absolutely. So that's really interesting. So you have essentially some uh, bifurcation at the fund level. So at the asset level, you have a simple capital structure comprised of debt and equity. But then when 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 those cash flows flow to the fund, you have fund investors that are either investing... For cash flow or for appreciation, and that's yeah. very similar. I'm not sure if you're familiar. In the U.S., a lot of syndications are being set up in, with this dual class or this dual tranche yeah. with the yeah. A and B. So it's very similar, uh, just on yeah. a deal by deal basis rather than at the fund level. Uh, that's, yeah. that's a very interesting take. And so, what break it down a bit more? What's the percentage of investors for cash flow versus capital gain and Mm-hmm. What, do you, what do you think yeah. is the, the right approach moving forward, we'll say?
1: Yeah, the cash flow investors, we started with like three to one, you know, versus the equity holder uh, with, with the capital gain um, uh, uh, shareholders of the fund. Uh, we started with three to one and then gradually as we get more cash flow or as we exit from the assets, we gradually. Currently, we are like, you know, one to one, you know, with two assets left in our fund. And which you know provides a lot of cushion to the uh, to those uh, um, um, dividend um, uh, receiving investors, and uh, um, it does worry me <laughs> because you know this renders the fund not so sort of uh, um, not so uh, defensive against any um, downturns or whatever. But uh, you know um, this is what seems to be preferred by the Chinese investors, you know, who are uh, very. So some are very conservative. Some are more sort of looking for returns, and it it it's a it's a good structure so far in the, this environment. Maybe going forward, you know, we would just you know be working with investors who are more sort of uh, um, taking the lower cash on cash and uh, and uh, hold, uh, be able to hold for for longer term. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So let's stay on the on the fund topic. So w- with funds, it, there's an interesting. There's interesting questions about how long do you hold assets? How long can you hold assets? You know, What if there's a downturn? Are you able to hold for longer and things like that? A lot of people worry about funds in terms of having a set time to wind it down and things like that. So uh, you know, please discuss just some of the terms of the fund that, that allow you to operate and actually execute on your strategy.
1: Yeah, this is basically a value added strategy. So um, it takes like 12 to 18 months to for you to do the renovations to the interior renovations to the units and then to to, to, to turn over your your railroad um, and then exit, you know, uh, of course, you know, what we find is over the past four years, although the market is very good, but still, you know, for our particular projects. Uh, the kind of a renovation and the, the uh, rent premium we are able to get out of the renovation is kind of a struggle a little bit um, because, you know, with a fast $130 premium or whatever, you know, the market probably won't take it while, you know, over steadily, you know, over a longer term, you know, they can, uh, the rest of the classic units can uh, get a higher growth, you know, rent growth by themselves. Uh, yeah, so, so, um, so this kind of uh, um, environment enable us to um, to put some some break on the on the renovations and uh, and uh, and uh, that's for sure. You know, um, the different market has different uh, capabilities in terms of accepting your your renovation units. Yeah. So, um, what was the question again,
0: sorry. Well, what's the, I guess we'll talk about more at the asset level. What's the typical hold period. You mentioned that you
1: oh, okay, yeah. stabilize okay. Yeah.
0: an asset in 18 so, months.
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 So, so, so sometimes we just have to, you know, halt the uh, renovation program and then, you know, while we wait for the market to recover. And then, um, in terms of, you know, exiting, I think, you know, Leaving some, you know, meat on the bone is is a good thing, right? So, so it works for us. And uh, and uh, um, actually, if you have a, you know, play there, and then, um, then the market um, will give you some credit for for leaving the where the buyer, the future buyer, will actually, you know, dig a hole on the ground and, <laughs> and jump in it. You know, if you have, you know, meat on the bone, so this doesn't affect us in terms of exiting. You know. Right now, what's the hindrance for our exiting is um, we have a lot of uh, um, uh, prepayment penalties. Our CD alone, right? You know, because of the treasuries, you know, being low, and the, the uh, prepayment penalty suddenly becomes very prohibitive. You know, it's almost like eight percent or nine percent of the entire asset value. So we are sort of holding on to to uh, the the assets and then just wait for the. Uh, the treasury to to come back again you know to to, to reduce the uh, the uh, prepayment penalty and so uh, we don't find it very difficult to you know attract uh, extract a return you know however you know to f- fully realize the potential of one asset or two then you know we just have to look at the entire uh, demographics or the the submarket and some assets are just doing very fantastically you know and they, they will do fa- fantastic going forward. So you are leaving not only meat on the bone, probably you are leaving some gold on the bone. Uh, And uh, that's, you know, uh, that's a pity for the operator. You know, we, we, we like to hold on to our assets. Yeah. Interesting.
0: So I love that you said leaving meat on the bone for the future buyer. A lot of people talk about that, but I think actually thinking about it ahead of time, even before you acquire the asset is, is wise. So for example, Most of the time when people look at a business plan or they look at an acquisition, they project out renovating every single unit and and raising rents on every single unit, which maybe there are other ways to add value, but that essentially would take all the meat off the bone. So how are you looking at an acquisition going into it thinking, okay, I need to leave meat on the bone. Should I only renovate 80% of the units, 50% of the units? What what do you how do you think about that going even pre acquisition?
1: Yeah, of course you know we have these models and then you know we have um, some of the uh, um, some of the acquisitions we have our sponsor who just will leave like twenty five percent of the units unrenovated. And they are not so convinced that, that the market is strong enough to take up all the units renovated, and, uh, and and we are fine with that you know because. Effectively, you know, people are growing to love this strategy, the value-added strategy, and uh, some people just, you know, will kill for the, for for having a property with the kind of uh, the strategy in the right market. And uh, so sometimes it's a bias. Uh, it's the seller's market. Then uh, uh, upon your exit, so if you have some units not unrenovated, people will pay like you know already sixty dollars on the uh, on the uh, on the rental increase, you know, for you. And effectively the buyer will dig a hole on the ground and say, I will jump into the hole, you know, just, just in order to get hold of the asset. And then I will do the renovation and, you know, pull myself self out of it. So you are effectively doing doing nothing, but you are sharing, you know, some of the upside um, uh, to the to the buyer. And that's how strong this market is. So I am very fine with, you know, not doing the 100% of the renovations, you know, why you you can earn the money without the sweat you know why do you want to sweat you know
0: yeah i think you explained that very well and it's it is really interesting to see and it speaks to the the the, the demand skew towards value add uh, rather than just stabilized core plus or cash flowing assets right so it's like you said perfectly the the cap rate at which you can sell at when you exit is compressed when you leave meat on the bone And that compression, you didn't do any work for you just set up the asset to have that straightforward value add, right? And and I think the key there is really the best situation is where you can buy a deal, where the value add story isn't very clear. And then you make it clear, you prove it out. And now you can sell it with a clear message, clear story. And that's where you could sell at a at a four cap or four and a half cap. And like you said, buyer will jump into a hole just so that they can buy that four cap, do all this work to renovate the asset and then end up at a five and a half cap. Whereas they could have just started out and went and bought a five and a half cap to start or maybe a little lower than that. So it's interesting to see, uh, yeah, it's it's a very powerful force in the market right now.
1: Yeah, that's also sort of brings, introduces risk to the participants because, you know, right now I'm a seller, you know, I, I'm holding on to the assets, but, you know, I'm still going to buy some assets and then, you know, this is the situation we are faced with. So, so I just hope the, uh, the rationale and the, the underwriting will be more sort of a uh, uh, conservative and uh, be, be, uh, be reasonable.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, like you said, it benefits you tremendously on the sell side, assuming you can exit, but on the buy side, you have that, 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 that that thing yeah, that's wonderful. And being, is it, you. Yeah,
1: Exactly. So you're competing so, with a whole bunch of people who's willing to just like dig a hole on the ground. Yeah.
0: Exactly. So what are some ways that you combat that on the acquisition side? What are some strategies, ways that you're trying to be unique so that you can actually mm-hmm. find value and avoid the crazy valuations?
1: Yeah. We just have to understand that the submarkets really well, you know, we have to understand that the selected cities, we don't like to, Go, go to two small cities uh, the cities with like you know e- economics that's skewed over one sector um, so we we want to stay with cities with like two million population and up you know like you know atlanta um, austin phoenix uh, dallas you know that kind of cities and then um, we like understand we like to understand the, the neighborhoods you know we were avoid the the, the, the the regions where, you know, there's a lot of supply, you know, um, because the, the supply and demand, you know, is always not good if, if you're investing in real estate, if there's a lot of supplies. So with a very dried up supply, then you look at the um, the schools, you know, the school ratings, the, um, the transportation, the jobs, the amenities, the shopping centers and all these things. If these things are check off, then, um, then the, that means you know that area is pretty good for investment, and if there's a rapid uh, growth in um, past you know two or three years of growth in rent, that further proves it. And you know, these things are fundamentally driving the value of the assets, uh, rather than just doing you know an active um, um, uh, operation yourself. You know um, the um, effectively the, uh, the 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 city's development or you know. Uh, will take care of your, your value-add. And that's, you know, you're already in a boat that's, you know, uh, going up in value. And then, you know, if you are uh, good good operator, it doesn't take too much operator skill, you know, in order to um, get the rent premium after the uh, renovation. Uh, that's it's just uh, icing on the cake. Um, so even for those markets, you are willing to pay a premium because you know the market uh, is strong and the risk is, uh, is lower, yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So that's an interesting take on it basically. So we we know that pretty much everywhere you look, if you're looking for value add, it's very competitive and the prices are very high. So rather than trying to focus on necessarily getting a finding a bargain, because those are very difficult to find, you take the approach in the opposite way. And you say, Well, I understand that everything's expensive. So let me find what's actually worth paying for by by the strength of the the market and the potential growth of that asset. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So, let me just see what other questions I have. One one question I have here is taking a step back and really going uh, looking at macroeconomics. I think it's interesting, you, you know, you're coming from China, you have a different perspective, a unique view. So, uh would love to hear if you have any unique insights or your thoughts on U.S. economics and and where you think we might be headed. Uh, we we recently had the uh, results of the Georgia Senate uh, runoff elections, and you know l- there's gonna be stimulus on the way. And so, w- how do you take in all that information and and, and synthesize it into a into a thesis?
1: Yeah, um, since the pandemic, um, well, in China we had uh, you know two months of uh, staying at home, you know. Um, earlier last year, and, you know, I started to, you know, read the books about the U.S. Uh, economy and, you know, went all the back to, you know, when the Federal Reserve was established and even before that, and then, you know, I read a book about Keynes, um, uh, John Maynard uh, Keynes, and I read a few books about um, other economists, um, Minsky, and uh, and uh, just realize, you know, if you investing in an asset, you are really sort of standing on a moving train, and then you want to understand this train of uh, macro uh, um, econ- economy, and then gradually you sort of figure out, you know, uh, what where the train is going, and uh, and this is tremendously important, um, because well, that's also a risk risk uh, risk management, uh, I guess. Uh, in China, China, there's a saying that in, in order to be wealthy, you have to take risk. And uh, um, so um, I think, you know, there's, it, the U.S. economy, U.S. So, uh, society and uh, people are extremely... Uh, dynamic and the vibrant uh, in terms of innovation, in terms of the scientific research, in terms of the other uh, uh, elements of uh, good enterprise that come together to to, 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 to make it uh, to flotation. Uh, I think it, it's, it's, it's really, you know, don't discount any of the dynamics of this. And uh, in the past, you know, during the, uh, after the World War II, you know, there was a period of the U.S. was going to, you know, high debt. Uh, to GDP, and then you know the economy just grows, and the you know it does, doesn't become a problem. And uh, right now, you know, still the U.S. has you know a lot of debt, and uh, the GDP growth is sluggish or whatever. And then, but still, you know, if you look at the Tesla, you know, it's like you know big phenomena right now. But ten years ago, you know, where's Tesla? And in ten years uh, in future, I I think you know somebody somebody will overtake Tesla and and then I have the theory of, you know, every 10 years you, you add two zeros to anything you read in the news. It's like, you know, 10 years ago, like, uh, you know, maybe, um, I have to think in the U.S. terms, maybe, you know, you look at the news about companies was like 100 billion. And right now, you know, you read about the companies was like a, a, thought, uh, a trillion, OK, or something like that, you know. Um, so in the future, you know there's a lot of innovation, a lot of uh, new things being developed, and uh, the economy will grow more more efficient, and the people will be enjoying more um about almost everything except for like healthcare. Education and the rent—you know, these things are just, just keep going up in price. Uh, I don't know, you know, maybe rent in the future will be shooting down. Um, I don't know when, you know, you you have nobody to, uh, you have those driverless cars, you know, can take you to anywhere, and then you don't mind, you uh, living in a very um, remote uh, outskirts of a, of the town. Uh, so, this is one side. Th- one side, and the other side is, you know, the U.S. has problems you know you guys uh, have a lot of problems with with the media with the kind of uh, bad habits in terms of in terms of you know the media try to you know, almost everything is a propaganda, you know, trying to, there's no dis, no respect of facts, and uh, people are getting more and more extreme, um, more and more intolerant to the other's ideas, and uh, it's not liberal, you know, you know it's illiberal, and uh, there are like, you know, a lot of things going on that's, you know, pushing people to be more extreme, and you know, the education system is not sort of Helping, you know, I read this morning, you know, in terms of the whatever tests, you know, for the high school kids, US ranks like 22, you know, and uh, and uh, and uh, so this is a foundation of democracy, you know, you have to have informed and the reason, reason, you know. Uh, voters with good judgment in order to make a democracy that functions. Otherwise, you are just at the mercy of, you know, whoever tells the lie and whoever is weaponized the lie, the bias. And uh, this time you have the president who's, you know, behind this weapon and then pointing at the Congress, and uh, and uh, this is you know how this thing happens. So it's not you know all of a sudden it happens. It's uh, it's uh, it's a long way in the making. That the kind of uh, so this is you know divides the country. And uh, but still you know the future generations probably will figure out. You know I read a book about you know force turning right. You know about you know. Um, Every eighty years, there's a turning, and you know, dividing into four turnings. And you know, this guy uh, invented the words like millennials or Gen X or baby boomers or silent. So um, all these things, you know, it, you have to take it, you know, philosophically. And uh, I think U.S. is a great nation with a lot of strength and power. You know, the judicial system is awesome, It's wonderful, and uh, and the economy, uh, the uh, financial system is also pretty good. Um, so. And this is like everything in the world, you know, has good side and the bad side. You know, China has plenty of bad side. Um, so overall speaking, I will be sort of, you know, I think the interest rate will 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 be staying low, and so this will make the asset sort of um, bubbly. You know, the asset price will be high. So if you acquire, then you know four years ago, you are seeing like four, upper 4% uh, in cap rate, and now we are seeing lower 4% in cap rate. I wonder whether in the future you will see like, you know, upper 3% in cap rate. Maybe uh, it's not impossible, but still we are talking about inflation, so talking about risk-off or whatever. So, um, the, but, but, but the value-added strategy is really important for you to sort of keep your head above the the, the 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 wave, uh, you know, if you are swimming, then you know you you can actively uh, raise the assets value of of the uh, uh, the value of the asset by turning over the rent with higher uh, rents, and then you know you, you the the value will still be higher. You're not relying on the uh, the cap rate, the denominator. But sometimes, if the denominator goes up, then your your value disappears. Um, so there is always this risk in, involved, in and there's no, nothing sort of one-sided. You are taking this risk, and then the economy goes in cycles. So um, there is a period of lower risk, a low inf, uh, uh, lower cap rate, and a lower interest. But there may be some period of higher you know, interest and a higher cap rate, and this is you know we've got to be watching that very clo- uh, closely, although in the near term, you know, with so much debt and so much money being printed, I guess, you know, the um, central bank just has to be, uh, keep the interest rate low um, in order to stimulate the uh, the economy, which, you know, makes the asset bubbly. You know? but, uh, but I think, you know, just, uh, like what Charlie Munger says, you know, you know, Buffett and I, you know, choose companies don't based on the economic outlook. I choose companies based on, you know, whether they are good companies or not. And the economy will be just like, like flying. You know, you, you will have headwinds and the tailwinds, and it doesn't matter if you hold long enough. You know, there will be you know good results. So that's why I'm sort of looking to to have fun or capital sources that is able to hold longer, like for ten years. In order to um to weather this uh, this um, uh future macroeconomic uh, impact
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense definitely the longer you push out your hold period you take away a lot of risk from from the yeah. deal uh, yeah. e- economic risk or financial risk uh like like loan maturity risk for example and what you said also about it's important to have value add which i agree but unfortunately that's the numerator but like you said, the numerator, but the denominator is cap rate for value. And if cap rates move substantially on the denominator, like you said, it, it, it can wipe out your value, even if you executed successfully on a value add. But the, the, the why value add is still important is because once that asset is value added and has that higher NOI, your cash flow will be very substantial, very favorable. Yeah. And uh-huh. it will make it so that it's attractive to stay and hold long term. It's hard to hold long-term if, you're, if you have little to no cash flow. That makes yeah. it very difficult. But if you have yeah. healthy cash flow, that's what can keep you going through difficult periods or through periods where your valuation goes out the door and you don't really have an exit, but you have cash flow. So that's, again, always circling back to the importance of cash flow.
1: Yeah, yeah. in order to improve the uh, NOI, you know, maybe your, the value-added strategy Doing the investment in the uh, the renovations in the good time, you know, will enable you to have you know assets that are very much performing during bad time, and uh, so these are the things that's important uh, to keep in mind. And unfortunately, we are not entirely passive. You know, we we can uh, do the value add in order to. Um, to keep up, upkeep the assets and make the NOI uh, higher. Uh, the, the other thing to worry about is the tax, okay, the property tax, the insurance, those uncontrollable costs, you know, they go up predictably. You know, are <laughs> you know, faced with market risk, which is unpredictable, but you know, tax will go up, you know, just very predictable. So I hope I can find uh, those submarkets that you know with um, not so aggressive tax uh, increase. Uh, in order to keep the NOI story, you know, going longer. You know? Otherwise, if you hold longer, you pay more tax. And what's the point, you know, holding longer?
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's that's a very big risk. And that's why understanding the property tax situation specifically to that county, to that asset is is so important. Absolutely. Well, uh, that's, that's all we have time for. Please let listeners know uh, the best way to learn more about yourself, Hehui Capital Management and uh if they want to get in touch
1: yes um we are Shanghai based and uh you can reach us at the info at hehuifunds.com uh h e h u i f u n d s all in one word.com and uh um hope you know we can meet you okay thank you
0: great thanks again for being on the show
1: okay thank you thank you